This is the Daily Signal podcast for Thursday, October 3rd. I'm Rachel Del Judas. And I'm Daniel Davis. Karl Marx once called religion the opium of the people, an imaginary coping mechanism that makes suffering in this world more bearable. His vision was a secular atheistic one. But my guest today argues that Marx's vision was still intensely spiritual. In fact, he says Marx hijacked key themes from Christianity to create a false religion. Bruce Ashford joins me in today's episode. And don't forget, if you're enjoying this podcast, please be sure to leave a review or a five-star rating on iTunes and encourage others to subscribe. Now on to our top news. Well, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders underwent heart surgery on Wednesday and received two stents to address artery blockage. The surgery occurred after Sanders, who is 78, complained of chest pains. His team has canceled all scheduled events until further notice. His senior advisor, Jeff Weaver, said in a statement, according to Politico, Senator Sanders is conversing and in good spirits. He will be resting up over the next few days. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo delivered remarks Wednesday at the Vatican, which hosted a symposium on working with faith-based organizations. Pompeo addressed the critical need for religious liberty around the world. Here's part of what he had to say. Because when the state rules absolutely, God becomes an absolute threat to authority. That's why Cuba canceled National Catholic Youth Day back in August. When the state rules absolutely, human dignity is trampled, not cherished. That's why Assad kills his own people and has no regard for the 11 million Syrians suffering today as displaced persons and refugees. When the state rules absolutely, moral norms are crushed completely. That's why the Islamic Republic of Iran has jailed, tortured, and killed thousands of its own citizens for four decades. It's why China has put more than a million Uyghur Muslims, Muslims like Mrs. Darwood, in internment camps. And it's why it throws Christian, Christian pastors in jail. Well, North Korea fired what experts believe could be a submarine-launched ballistic missile on Wednesday, just hours after the country announced it would resume nuclear talks with the U.S. this weekend. According to Reuters, Japanese officials said the missile landed off the coast of Japan. If confirmed, this would be North Korea's first submarine-launched ballistic missile test in three years. Well, Planned Parenthood has secretly been building an 18,000-square-foot megaclinic in southern Illinois, which happens to be just about 10 miles from the last-standing abortion clinic in the state's capital, which is in a fight to keep its license. The facility has been built in secret to circumvent problems such as protests and other setbacks that would suspend production, according to Colleen McNicholas, the chief medical officer of Planned Parenthood of the St. Louis region in southwest Missouri. She told CBS News, quote, We were really intentional and thoughtful about making sure we were able to complete this project as expeditiously as possible because we saw the writing on the wall. Patients need better access, so we wanted to get it open as quickly as we could. Planned Parenthood says the abortion clinic should be opening later this month. Stephen Aiden, chief legal officer and general counsel of Americans United for Life, told LifeSite News he's not surprised by the news. How appropriate that Planned Parenthood has built a secret mega center to go with its mega-sized status as America's biggest abortion business. Fully one-third of all U.S. abortions are done at a Planned Parenthood facility, he said. Well, the plaintiff in a college admissions case has vowed to appeal after a federal judge ruled in favor of Harvard University, saying that the school's affirmative action admissions policy is legal. The plaintiff, a group called Students for Fair Admissions, argued that Harvard considered race too much in discriminating against Asian-American applicants. 
Federal District Court Judge Allison Burroughs said she found no persuasive documentary evidence of any racial animus or conscious prejudice against Asian Americans. The case has been closely watched as it could potentially determine the future of affirmative action in college admissions. Students for Fair Admissions say they will appeal to the first court of appeals and, if necessary, the Supreme Court. Well, taxes are claiming more of Americans' hard-earned cash than clothing and health care combined. That's according to a new survey from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. In 2018, Americans spent roughly $14,700 on food, clothing, and health care, compared to over 18000 that the average American paid in federal, state, and local taxes, according to a report from CNS News. Up next, I'll sit down with Bruce Ashford to talk about how Marxism, in some ways, is a counterfeit Christianity. Exciting news for Heritage members. Our 2019 President's Club is taking place October 21 through 23 in Washington, D.C. This is an exclusive event for Heritage members to hear directly from our experts and other conservative leaders. This year, that includes Vice President Mike Pence and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. To learn more about how you can attend, please call 1-800-546-2843. That's 1-800-546-2843. I'm joined now in the studio by Dr. Bruce Ashford. He is the Dean of Faculty and Provost at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary down in North Carolina, where he also serves as a professor of theology and culture. He also blogs at Christianity for the Common Good. And as a note of personal disclosure, he is a professor of mine. I'm a part-time student at Southeastern. Uh, So, Bruce, thanks for swinging by the studio. Yeah, it's great to be on the podcast today. Thank you. So, uh, Bruce, you're an interesting blogger and writer because on the one hand, you're kind of like waist deep in historical theology and philosophy and writing the journal articles and all of that. But you're also writing contemporary books for uh, for your audience, which is largely Christian. Um, and you're also blogging about po- contemporary political issues. And one of those issues that's come up, our audience is well aware, is that socialism is a recurring theme with with uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and uh, Bernie Sanders and others uh, uh, bringing that back to the fore. Um, But you've written about not just socialism, but the Marxist underpinnings of it. You write about how Marxism uh, as an ideology is actually a false religion. And I think that's an interesting angle. I think a lot of folks, uh, even conservatives, think of Marxism as just a set of bad ideas. But you're saying it's actually false religion and even idolatry. Why, why do you frame it that way? Yeah. And so, you know, I'm not the first person to uh, bring this up. The great uh, French philosopher Raymond Aron, uh, who's a contemporary of Sartre, uh, explored this in a book that he wrote called The Opium of the Intellectuals, which is a play off of Marx's um, Opium of the Masses. And he argued that, uh, that uh, structurally and existentially, Marxism functions more like a religion than just a kind of a mere ideology uh, that's been picked up on by some contemporary political scientists and philosophers like David Coises and Peter Kraft. And the critique, you know, is really Augustinian. And Augustine argued that anytime you take some aspect of the natural order and elevate it to a level of ultimacy, um, absolutize it, you've got yourself a, a, um, an idol or a false religion. And I think Marx did that uh, with material equality. And what happens is when you take any one aspect of reality and you elevate it uh, that high, you absolutize it, it becomes a cudgel 
uh, with which you beat down other good aspects of reality. And we can we can talk about this later, but uh, that's exactly what Marxism has done. It's taken this drive for material equality and beat down other good aspects of reality. It's uh, actually it, it induces poverty and decreases liberty. So lay out for us the basic Marxist paradigm. I mean, we hear the word so often, but what actually is the worldview of Marxism? Yeah, so Marx, we'll start with his philosophy of history. He was an economic determinist, or something very close to a determinist, that believed that the logic of human history can be traced by tracing uh, economic struggles, class struggles. So he divided the world into five eras, and he argued that in each of these eras, you can see that human beings are essentially laborers, and that their labor conditions determine who they are and determine the happiness of their life. First is Asiatic, the hunter-gatherer stage, and this is where human beings are at the mercy of nature. Uh, the second era is the ancient era, and this is the slave-master era, where uh, you know the slave is oppressed by the master. Then on the heels of that, you've got the medieval era, the feudal system, and this is the sort of the lord-peasant uh, era. And it's a little bit better than the, the ancient era. Marx argued that owners began to realize the problem with slavery is that your property can get sick or die and your property usually wants to run away. And so in the, in the uh, Lord peasant era, uh, the peasants at least had some, some ownership of what they did. They got to keep their crops and so forth. And they were less likely to, less likely to run away. Then we have capitalism, which is the um, owner worker relationship where he argued that the, the wealthy, uh, the owners oppressed uh, the workers. And, you know, he lived in an era of serious crony capitalism, the industrial era where there were immoral market agents who were working young children and, and adults 16 hours a day, you know, things that we would never agree with. I mean, unhealthy forms of the free market. Uh, and he just assumed that that's what capitalism was. And he was wrong. Um, and then finally, the fifth era that he's pushing towards is he believed that definitely and inevitably the working class would uh, disappear. They'd be replaced by machines and that they would rebel and that a few wealthy people would help them to overthrow the, the, the wealthy class and that there would be a socialist utopia. And eventually – and this is uh, risable. This is just laughable. He believed that under the Marxist paradigm, the state would wither away. And uh, we've seen something like the opposite of that happen every time Marxist thought has been instantiated in ac actual society. That's interesting, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's uh, – we're going to see uh, – we'll talk about this a little bit later that if you take Marx's benchmark, which is history, Marxism fails under that benchmark in the most utterly devastating way repeatedly. So that's his philosophy of history. His anthropology – this is important – he believed that human beings are essentially laborers. That's who we are. It determines who we are. And um, because he was a determinist and because he believed that people's way of thinking was determined by their economic class, he believed that people couldn't really be reasoned with. And the problem with that, and we see this in contemporary society, um, they, people take Marxist thought and translate it to gender, sex, and race theory. The problem is that if people can't be reasoned with, the only thing that's left is coercion. They can be bullied, and we see in Marxist societies imprisoned, assassinated, and uh, so that, that's his anthropology. So that's a that's a brief summary of his thought. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, it's really evocative of the you know identity politics. You're in this group or you're in that group, and you've got certain interests, and that's all you are, and you can't rise above that. You can't think beyond yeah. that, and it makes you wonder about Marx himself. Did he see himself as like somehow above all of these people and able to get to the truth? 
Mm, that's a that's a great uh, critique, you know, hoisting by his own petard. And uh, that's uh, another one of the many ironies uh, that, that you've got. Because wasn't he a traitor to his own class? He was kind of raised in a, a what he would call the yeah. bourgeois, the wealthy. Oh, yeah. yeah, his father was a lawyer and uh, he was sent to Berlin and didn't have to pay for any of it. University of Berlin, studying under the greatest minds. Um, you know, I, uh, just last week I spoke at a, a college, uh, college Republicans kickoff at a university in North Carolina and had a bunch of uh, progressive activists show up. And their activism, uh, it was a Marxist form of activism. They treated me as a worthless piece of crap who could not be reasoned with. And so they used uh, kind of verbal forms of intimidation to try to bully me. I'm not easily bullied. <laughs> so, you know, but I tried to engage them in good faith. And about half of them ended up responding to me as a as a human being, but the other half didn't. They treated me uh, under Marx's view. I was I'm determined by my uh, gender, sex, race, and economic class, and I'm somebody to be you know bullied rather than talked with. And it's a problem that so many of our college students are being taught that sort of the Alinsky method and uh, kind of the Marxist view of one's social and political uh, opponents. Yeah, well, that, that's sad to hear. Um, uh, unfortunately, uh, more and more common. So before we get too much into that, though, I want to ask you about Marxism as an antithesis to Christianity. You, you, you write about this in your blogs and how Marx was actually putting forward an alternative to Christianity, but in many ways actually mirrored it. Talk about that. Yeah, so um, Marx actually, when you when you take a look at the system that he put together, so Marx uh, converted to Christianity early on. He was a, a Jewish, converted to Christianity briefly, and even wrote some uh, relatively beautiful prose about Christianity before he became an atheist. And when he became an atheist and he began writing his, you know, his theory, you can tell it's almost as if he had the Bible at his elbow. So for every major Christian doctrine. He, he built a Marxist doctrine that was the inverse of the converse of it. So, for example, in uh, Marxism, you've got a god, and the god is material equality. You've got an evil, and the foremost evil is material inequality and the class struggle that exists because of that. Then you have a salvation. Salvation is uh, Marxist ideology and revolution. And if I can stop there for just a minute, Marxist revolution is not political revolution. Political revolution is something limited. It's when you replace one political arrangement with another. But the socialists, most of them, to the extent that they're like Marx, don't want political merely a political revolution. They want a social revolution, which is an entire upending and overthrow of the social order. And that doesn't go well. That never goes well when you clear the decks and try to start over again. Um, there's there's uh, no one person or no group of people is brilliant enough and persuasive enough to overturn an entire social order and for it to go well. And that's what, what Marx wants to do with the salvation he provides. Um, you've got Marx's version of church, and that would be pockets of classless people in the midst of a capitalist world. When I was in Russia, I lived in Russia right after the fall of the Soviet Union, and the Russians told me that they would have in their communist youth group meetings, they would have they had a little Bible. They had communist youth group. Oh, yeah. They had youth group meetings and they had a little green book that looked just like a Bible called oh, the Atheist goodness. Table. And they sang songs about how God doesn't exist and how Jesus wasn't God. Wow. It's very Do silly. Do they have any atheist altar calls or something? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Baptisms? I mean, yeah, I'm not, I, I mean, yeah, catechisms and so forth. The priesthood in Marx's um, system is the Communist Party. And now here's an important one, the ethic. So the Christian ethic is a principled ethic. 
There are certain things that are wrong in and of themselves, and you never do them, ever. Like Ra- murder, rape, stealing, rape. murder. Yeah. But the, the Marxist ethic is utilitarian. Under the Marxist system, the good is whatever helps achieve the socialist utopia. The bad is whatever hinders it. And that's why Marxist societies have been so easily able to justify assassinations. You had 800,000 executions in the first three decades of communism in Russia. It's why they could imprison in the gulag, I think, 1.7 million people in the first uh, three decades in the Soviet Union. And those are the Soviet numbers. Those aren't American numbers. I mean, that's that's a fact. So you've got a utilitarian ethic that ends up undermining human dignity. Um, you have an end times. You know, Christians talk about uh, uh, we, we believe that Christ will return one day to set the world to rights, install a one world government and a one party system, and justice will roll down like the waters. Well, uh, Marx had his version of that, and that is that, that um, once his revolution had happened, there would be such material abundance. I mean, that's funny, isn't it? There'd be so much material abundance. People would be so happy. They'd be frolicking and, uh, uh, you know, in, their, in the midst of abundance and the state would wither away. And we know, of course, that the opposite happens in the Marxist system. The state uh, doesn't wither away. It becomes like a giant octopus that swells to enormous proportions and reaches its tentacles into every sector of society and every sphere of culture. And then finally, you know, the Christian view of history is that history is linear, is proceeding towards something, and that would be Christ's return, and that history is not a closed system, that there is a – there's – something that transcends us as a transcendent moral framework. And there's a, a God who underpins that. But for Marx, history is a closed system and the meaning of life is found within history, not without. And so that there's a summary of the way that Marxism functions as a, a false religion. And we can, if you want to, in a little while, we can talk about what happens when, when you build an ideology that functions as a False religion. Well, let's do that. Okay. So you, so you had the whole – I mean you talked about living in the post-Soviet world in Russia. You saw, I assume, the disastrous consequences of a whole half century of, of communism. Talk about how that came about and why, yeah. why, why building a system on what you call an idol is what was really problematic. Yeah. You know, so uh, I, I was uh, born in the 70s. All right. So I'm an old guy. And I Gen remember. <laughs> exactly. The last good generation, as yeah, they say. Uh, I hope so. <laughs> I hope we're a good generation. Um, but, you know, so when I was a kid, I, um, my parents received. Well, I remember watching Ronald Reagan, right, on television, talking about the evils of communist society. And I remember my parents received a bulletin um, four times a year from uh, Voice of the Martyrs. And it would have photographs of Russian pastors and Christians who had been put in the gulag in the concentration camps, and it would tell their story. And they almost always died of starvation within a few months, or they were assassinated or, or, or killed, executed. And it got my imagination going. And so uh, I moved um, in the 90s. I moved into a Central Asian corner of Russia and lived there for a while. And I saw and talked to the people who lived under that uh, regime, and it was absolutely devastating. I mean, so here's how I would put it. when When you take an aspect of the the natural world and elevate it to the level of a God and make it a God, it's always going to go badly. It's going to distort and warp reality. It's going to beat down other good aspects of reality. And so let's talk about how that happened. We'll just use Russia as our examples, or the communists, the Soviet Union. We could do the same thing with the People's Republic of China. 
And if it's called a people's republic, it's probably not a people's republic. <laughs> uh, we do the same thing with Cuba. Yeah, Venezuela we'll, today. Yeah, Venezuela. Um, so, But we'll focus on the Soviet Union. I, I know those numbers the best. Marxism fails by its own benchmark, which is history. All right. So historically, um, the abolition of uh, private property has not led to liberation. It's led to oppression. Think about it. If you don't have private property, you only have one thing left, which is your own soul, right? Your own inner freedom, freedom of conscience. And that's something that nobody can ever take away. But other than that, you have nothing. If you don't have private property, the government can take absolutely everything away from you. They've got you in an iron grip. You can't even go home. You can't even go home to your house and be with your family because you, you don't even have that. Historically, Marxist states, have, uh, the state has not withered away. It's actually become enormous and oppressive. So to give some numbers in the USSR, you know, the U- Communist Party used systematic terror because remember, you can't reason with people. Right. People are historically determined if somebody's an opponent of the government and they can't be reasoned with. And if you have util- utilitarian ethic then the good thing to do is to get rid of those people. So um, just from 1921 to 1953, 1.7 million Soviet citizens died in the Gulag. 800,000 were executed. 400,000 died from forced resettlement and the starvation and so forth that occurred from that kind of uh, resettlement. Anthropology. Marx did believe in human dignity, not the same way that I do, but his system undermined human dignity. Soviet Union um, for those of you listening, you really ought to read Alexander Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago. There's an abridged edition that's a very good edition. And in that, in there, he talked about how the Soviet leaders viewed the Soviet citizens as swarming lice, that they didn't have any inherent value or dignity. They only had instrumental value. And if you were for the revolution, they were good with you. If you were against the revolution, you could be eliminated. So human beings also are essentially uh, robots or animals in this theory, and I think that's a negative. I think another problem with Marxism, and we see this in contemporary forms of Marxism, is that uh, it misunderstands human, human nature and human, it misunderstands evil, and it locates evil either exclusively or primarily in systems. Christianity doesn't do that. I mean, Christianity recognizes that evil is, on the one hand, located in the human heart and rooted in the human heart. And that's why we believe in bringing justice to individuals who have flouted the law. We do believe in what people call today systemic evil, that institutions, if you have enough individuals who are unjust, then their their sin coalesces at the social level to warp institutions. But if you get rid of systemic injustice, you don't get rid of evil. And the problem with Marxists is that they aim almost exclusively at institutions. Um, and don't realize that you can get rid of the institutions and evil will still be there, rooted in the human heart. Uh, a couple other negative consequences is that uh, Marx's historic determinism led to moral relativism. We've touched on that a little bit, but um, that's part of the corruption of society in the Soviet era is uh, moral relativism from stem to stern. And then the last thing is, you know – when I hear somebody like AOC or socialists today talking about the 1%, sometimes I laugh. Sometimes I get upset about it because it's such a – it's so false. If you want to see a, a country marked by – I mean, look at what Marx did in the USSR. The wealthy, right? The Communist Party, the KGB bosses were enormously wealthy. And everyone else in the country was poor. Everyone else was poor. It, it, there wasn't a 1%. There was a 1,000th one of 1% who was enormously wealthy and everybody else was poor. 
And so if you'd like to help the U.S., uh, let's do let's let's embrace a reality based politic like you've got here at Heritage. Um, socialism is, is not a reality based politic. It's uh, grand utopian promises that can't be backed up. Well, given all that history you just laid out, I mean, economic Marxism has been devastating for country after country after country. Why do you think it's making this resurgence in American politics, you know, socialism, if it's got such a bad track record? Is it just because we're not educated or do you think there's something more? Yeah, good question. I'll give my best shot at answering it. So I think on on the one hand, with uh, younger Americans, millennials and Generation Z, there is a lack of awareness, historical awareness. Um, they, they didn't grow up exposed to the utter horrors of the Soviet Union, People's Republic of China, the atrocities in Cuba. And so there's not a kind of existential and historical awareness. And then so that's part of it. But but you've got older people. You've got Bernie, crazy Bernie up there. Who and, spent uh, his honeymoon in oh. the Soviet Union. <laughs> and that woman stayed with him. You know, I don't I, I don't understand that. But uh, I think people are drawn to utopia. I think we all are. We, we, we want, especially idealistic people. People are idealistic and are drawn to utopia. And there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. But we can't usher in a utopia. And the reason is that their evil is rooted in the human heart, not in systems. And so no amount of clearing the deck socially and starting over with new institutions will ever bring that utopia and so we're going to have to settle for something more realistic. And, it, you know, for me, I think the realistic thing is uh, to have a, as, as minimal of a government as possible. Government's going to have to expand a little bit sometimes and step in and fix some things. But, uh, but the government should set the conditions where human beings can flourish. And when, when there's immoral market agents, then we can step in and correct those immoral market agents. But we can't do this sort of grand, utopian revolutionary politics is just it's not going to work out well marxism in its economic form as you were talking about clearly devastating and a lot of folks on the left have said yeah maybe that doesn't work we'll adopt like a softer capitalism but we're going to apply marxism in all these other areas in sex gender race talk about that transition and how marxism lives on even in countries that are capitalist yeah so you know if you'd asked me 20 years ago 15 years ago even, I would have said Marxism is dead. I mean, it is absolutely dead. It will never make a comeback. But it has made a comeback, and you're right, not just in the economic dimension. Um, Marx's historic determinism has been taken and applied not just to economics but to gender, race, and sex, that you as a person, Daniel, are um, a white male Middle class, upper middle class, I don't know what you are, but you're determined Definitely by middle, lower middle class, lower. maybe. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, and you're, you're determined by that, and you're not a person who can be reasoned with, right? You're, you are a person who should be shouted down, mocked, insulted, uh, kind of intimidated, bullied a little bit. Um, um, Just incapable of, a, of an original yeah, thought. Yeah, that's right. And so, you know, and so you have identity politics based on identities. And I, th- I do think that identity politics defined as seeking the good of your own tribe at the expense of the common good um, is the death of democracy. It is a way to burn down the house that our founding fathers built. And so I, we want to promote a view where people are independent agents. We're not completely inter- independent. We're interdependent on other people. But we are able to think freely. People can change their way of thinking like Marx did. He went from being a Jew 
to a Christian, to an atheist, right? So he changed his thought. He wasn't uh, so determined historically. And we want to treat other people with that kind of respect. We want to um, ascribe human dignity to them, you know, and uh, reason with them and persuade them instead of engaging in uh, coercive forms of activism. So when you're engaging with people, say they're college students or someone else who thinks that you're just part of your identity group and not to be reasoned with, to be shunned, are you ever able to succeed in breaking through to them? You mentioned some college students earlier where you did, but how do you do that? And how do you meet them at a mental level where you can actually have a conversation so that they're not so tied to their ideology that that they keep shunning you? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I started as an opinion writer about four years ago and wrote mostly for Fox, but I've written some for Daily Signal, Daily Caller. And and when I would link to those articles on my Facebook author page, I would get all sorts of comments, as you can imagine, from activists. And I started an experiment then that I've continued also not just electronically, but in sort of in-person in-person engagement with um, progressive activists. And the good thing is that these people are human. They're human. And that means that there's a good chance that if you enter into a good faith conversation with them, that they're going to respond decently. And on average, I would say about half of the folks do, if you work at it, end up responding decently and you have a good conversation. You come away, uh, you don't usually come away agreeing. <laughs> You're not going to win them over on the spot, but you come away with it having been a good, uh, a good engagement. The other half of the folks, I think, uh, on average, have been so overwhelmed by ideology that their their humanness doesn't come out. Um, but I, th- I think we need to be careful not to respond in kind, right? right? Because it's 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 it's. I would imagine. I think it is easy for some on the right to also fall into that. You know, yeah. identity politics mindset where it's like, okay, you're just going to hate me for who I am, then I'm just going to hate you for who you are. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's def, it's a temptation. I've fallen into that trap plenty of times in my life, you know, when you're being just kind of mocked and insulted and treated like a, a worthless piece of trash. You want to, you know, give it back to them. And I think it is okay to, to, to you know, sometimes to poke some fun at it or, or to push back really hard. But we got to remember not a responding kind. And uh, if we can do that, we'll be able to win the day. Well, Bruce, this is a fascinating discussion. I hope our listeners have enjoyed it. I understand you have some books on the market. What should our listeners check out on Amazon? Yeah, so if you're out there and you'd like some reading, I've got a couple books recently that you might like. I published a book called One Nation Under God, Christian Hope for American Politics. It's a gift-sized book, very small. And I then published recently one called Letters to an American Christian. It was a fun book. I wrote it as a series of hypothetical letters, 27 brief letters to a hypothetical college student at uh, an elite university, encouraging him not to be seduced by is Secular Progressive Professors. And so it's a fun read. It's the kind of book meant to be read at the beach or in an easy chair. And so if you'd like, uh, uh, and it addresses all the hot button issues, every hot button issue that I can imagine that that book addresses. And so if you'd uh, like to read it or, or buy one for a friend of yours who's headed to college or who wants to think through political issues, I think that would be a one that's easy to read and, and gives some good talking points. Fantastic. Bruce, thanks for your time today. Thanks. It's been great to be on the show with you. What the heck is trickle-down economics? Does the military really need a space force? What is the meaning of American exceptionalism? I'm Michelle Cordero. I'm Tim Descher. And every week on the Heritage Explains podcast, we break down a hot-button policy issue in the news at a 101 level. 
an entertaining mix of personal stories, media clips, music, and interviews. We help you actually understand the issues. So do this. Subscribe to Heritage Explains on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts today. Well, that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks for listening to the Daily Signal podcast brought to you from the Robert H. Bruce Radio Studio at the Heritage Foundation. Please be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Pippa. And please leave us a review or a five-star rating on iTunes to give us any feedback. We'll see you again tomorrow. The Daily Signal podcast is executive produced by Kate Trinko and Daniel Davis. Sound designed by Lauren Evans and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.